even get out of my door. There's enough trouble to make a poor girl wonder where she wanna go. Welcome to Queer Icons, where we cover and discuss an important figure to the LGBT plus community and give our opinion on whether they are truly iconic. I'm so excited to cover the icon this week, Bessie Smith. This is the first time we're covering an icon that I really didn't have any knowledge going into um, doing my research. And I had a great time learning about her music and her life and just how unapologetically she lived her life. Oh, yeah, she is absolutely spectacular. I first got to know Bessie Smith back in high school. Around 11th grade, I started to get uh, to know more about gospel music, and in particular, the great Mahalia Jackson, who mentioned Bessie Smith as an inspiration. And that led me to other genres, such as spiritual, soul, soul music, jazz, and blues. And I found myself very attracted to uh, blues, since I absolutely love melancholy and sad songs. And truly, that genre like provides a lot of these emotions. Um, yet, I had no idea that Bessie Smith was bisexual until my uh, early 20s. So I'm glad that we chose to cover her as a queer icon. Yeah, and I definitely loved like learning about just her genre of music and the time period she was in. Mm-hmm. And that there were several uh, lesbian and bisexual artists at that time that were a little unapologetic about it and kind of out there, more out there than I thought. So I thought it might be fun this week to cover just tattoos. And do you have any thoughts on tattoos or do you have any yourself? Um, I love talking to people about their (laughs) tattoos. I'm fascinated by their reasoning and inspiration for getting them. It, It is art or letters that you do carry on your body forever. So you're your own personal gallery and work of art. That's how I view it. Now, I personally do not have any. I keep changing my mind when it comes to design. So I truly don't think I'll ever get any due to my (laughs) indecisiveness. Like, I've been drawing tattoos since uh, college, I would say. Like, I had a sort of idea, but as I evolve and progress as a human being, you know, I keep looking at these older designs, and I'm like, well, I'm glad I didn't put that on my body. Has so, anybody else got that tattoo you've drawn? Yes, actually, I have designed four tattoos for people. Okay. So, And I felt really proud that, you know, um, I had people that wanted to have something to help create on their own body. Like, um, you know, and, and it's always that collaboration between the client, myself, and then eventually it does go to the tattoo artist who does apply it. Right. Um, and I do have like a funny story uh, about it. One of the tattoos, actually, it's the only one that was writing that it wasn't a design or like a drawing. And uh, it was in Italian. And the client had given me this deeply personal phrase. And because he insisted he had Italian background, I never thought of spell checking it. The phrase was a little bit more advanced than my rudimentary Italian knowledge that I knew from when I, when I was in Greece. Let's to say there was a tiny spelling error. <laughs> And thankfully, his tattoo artist checked right before the needle touched the skin. <laughs> He's like, oh, well, just in case, you know. And I was like, this is, like, you know, thank God for experience. Right. So after that, like, if I'm ever commissioned writing again, I won't take the client's word for it. I'll do the spell check myself. <laughs> yes. Because, was- you know, he really wanted, like, this beautiful <laughs> cursive thing. And, and it ended up really looking really pretty. 
but you know when someone tells you that like oh yeah they're like they're they're italian or they're part italian as it was his case i was confident he had already (laughs) spell checked the phrase right um and yeah i totally took his word for it (laughs) me um i also do not have any tattoos and i probably don't appreciate them as much as other folks do it's just kind of uh, preference of mine. I do prefer mini- minimal tattoos on um, guys that I'm dating or anything like that, and I'm usually kind of turned off by any like large body tattoos. So like mm. people that have those full sleeves or yeah. and stuff, or like the full back tattoos or like the whole chest. Like at the Super Bowl when Adam Levine like took off his shirt, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh okay. Oh, see, I like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, I mean, it truly really is a personal preference. It is. It's a personal yeah. preference. And uh, just to clarify, I don't have any like moral reasoning, or I'm not against anybody like getting tattoos in general. It's mm-hmm. you know, it's your body and your decision. Mm-hmm. And I have seen some amazing artwork that like mm-hmm. tattoo artists have done. Mm-hmm. So it's nothing like against them. It's just a kind of visual preference for me. Of, have you I, I don't ever gone like on like YouTube spirals of like really horrible tattoos? Oh, I have not. And cover up. <laughs> It is fascinating. <laughs> I've seen some Instagram posts about like cover ups where they like scroll through and show you. It's kind of funny, but so they can be changed. Yeah, they can change <laughs> with a lot of work, but they, yeah, you know. they can be altered. Um, I saw recently Bob the Drag Queen. He, he was talking about a tattoo and uh, like what was his first tattoo? And he he goes to uh, the artist. And he's like, well, I want this date. And he's like, oh, what is so significant about this date? And it was like, oh, this is like the, uh, the date of like my first tattoo because it was today's date. So his first tattoo was the day they, uh, he got a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Which it can sound a little silly, but I, I, I thought that was funny. Right. <laughs> it makes a, a tremendously good story. It, it makes a funny story. It's very humorous. And, you know, sometimes tattoos can be kind of addicting. And so, like, it could be kind of mm-hmm. nice to be like, before this date, <laughs> I didn't have all of this I, other stuff. Yes, yes. So that's fun. What strange dreams have you had? So, uh, I can't even really think of any, like, strange dreams right now. But I, usually my dreams tend to be incredibly surreal and action movie like so if we give that as my like average dream my weird dreams are actually the very realistic mundane ones (laughs) um like i once had a dream and the entire dream was truly doing the dishes and (laughs) i was that would be miserable but it wasn't even like piles of dishes to make it like excessive or interesting it was like the most boring, tedious chore like thing. And right. And that was it. Like I woke up to it. I was like, how unim- unimaginative <laughs> was that? <laughs> and then I actually had to do dishes. <laughs> I, was like, oh. I had to get up and do dishes. <laughs> Love it. What about you? Uh, so you know, I've had a, a bunch of crazy dreams, uh, but the one that's just like so memorable to me is when I was actually in elementary school, I think late elementary school, like fourth or fifth grade. Uh, and I had this dream that I was 
at school and I was running away from this monster. Now this monster, do you remember the song like one eyed, one horn, purple people leader? Yes. That's what this monster was. Was okay. a one eyed one horn purple people leader. And I was just running away from it and I eventually like opened a door and the door there was just like a cliff on the other side of the door basically and I was like hanging on to the door to try to not fall and I started screaming in my sleep and that's how I woke up my parents came in. <laughs> uh it was terrifying at the time but now i just like look at it like it was so funny like a purple people leader is chasing me (laughs) like not a song that's scary at all and yeah that is what manifested itself in my dream i mean your subconscious can really (laughs) it takes over uh do you have any personal icons this week Yes, uh, my personal icon uh, is actually the famous Mr. Potato Head uh, toy brand changing into a gender-neutral potato head. It is still keeping the Mr. and Mrs. uh, uh, Potato Head lines. Um, And adding children, but now you buy them all three as a set, I think, right? Yes, you can buy a, a set of like three potatoes. Two large ones, one small one. Mm-hmm. Also, I did not know that originally the toy was just a part and you had to get your own oh, potato. potato yes. like a real potato. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought that was funny. So, yeah, it is something very simple and, and seemingly small, but it, it makes all kids feel welcome to play with mm-hmm. a toy. And, and children often see themselves in their anthropomorphic toys. And, and having a non-binary toy, to me, is a step in the inclusive direction. It, it will enable them to to be and express their own authentic self and, and really not be, uh, you know, bound by any restrictions to any gender norms in, in a traditional society. Yeah. You know, they really, like, quite often, like, imposes that. And, and, I, and I really like that. And, and I, I know, as I was reading more articles about the Mr. Potato Head, I also read like how Barbie is also diversifying her line as well. That is not just like this white platinum blonde, right. or, you know, girl anymore. And and I love that. I I, yeah. I love the the diversity. There's just not one thing. Yeah, we can always go a little further, but yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. We can. <laughs> yeah, we further. can always. But I, you know what? I think we should always celebrate celebrate the, the be appreciative the small of, steps. of the small yeah. steps because. Each small step will lead to a larger step. And, right. And it, it will be like a trickle down. Yes. Sure. You know, so. and what about you, Matthew? Uh, so I read this this really cool article this week. Uh, it was about these a couple that was vacationing in Mexico. And it was a gay mm-hmm. couple. And they were on the beach. And they, uh, like, kissed on the beach. Now, I don't know how... Uh, deep the kiss was if they were like making out or if it was just like a peck on you know the lips or whatever mm-hmm. but the um somebody somewhere called the police on them the police showed up and they attempted to arrest this couple mm-hmm. uh, after talking about it and the crowd on the beach threw such an uproar <laughs> and booed and jeered the police <laughs> until the police decided to let go like let the um couple go and what's interesting is, so it's it's kind of a culture thing instead of a law thing, because mm-hmm. the the law in Mexico, it's not against the law to be gay or to have like public displays of affection. Uh-huh. So, but different 
cultures in Mexico, like different towns and cities are, you know, will culturally decide against it mm-hmm. um, as a town. And that's, that's what happened here. Um, so even though it wasn't illegal, the cops said they arrested him, beca- arrested them because uh, they kissed in front of children. And so children and families shouldn't have to watch that. <laughs> I see. But my icons are definitely that crowd that, uh, yeah. that defended the gay couple. And um, they even, like, some of them even started shouting, I'm gay too, I'm gay too. And mm-hmm. um, just uh, just forcing the police to do the right thing and let the, the gay couple go. And there is um, a small video clip. It doesn't show the full situation that I just described, but it shows a piece of the situation on upworthy.com. So if you want to, you can go check that out and look at it. Um, it was kind of a cool. I, lo- I love that. I, I like that solidarity that the, the, the crowd showed. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. Um, I thought it was impressive. I liked it. It's, it shows that who holds like real power. Right. Sure. That you, yeah, you can get like somebody to do the right thing through mm-hmm. kind of yeah. <laughs> pressure, you know? Um, and there was no, there was no like physical violence or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that's always good too. You know, they just were surrounding no the police car it. and like, yeah. And they weren't the, the, you know, the police had weapons. Mm-hmm. They did not ever point them at anybody, but the crowd wasn't trying to be like, physical against the cops. So it was just, they surrounded the cop car and started yelling at them. Yeah. basically. <laughs> um, so that's a pretty good thing. Uh, so let's move on to our icon of the week. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, we are speaking about Bessie Smith this week. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to let Nico go a little bit of background. Yes. Uh, so Bessie Smith was born on April 15th, 1894 in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And she passed away on September 26th in uh, 1937 in uh, Clarksdale. And she was only 43. I know, I was reading that. She made such an impact in that short period of time that she was like truly professional. Mm -hmm. Now, a little bit about her early life. Her father was a part-time Baptist preacher. And both she and her mother and and a brother died by the time Bessie was nine years old. So her uh, older sister took over uh, the family, and uh, sadly, Bessie couldn't really get an education. And in order to earn money and survive uh, through poverty, she started busking in the streets of Chattanooga with one of her brothers. So she would dance, and she would sing, and then her brother would play the guitar. She also had another older brother uh, who joined a small traveling troupe owned by Moses Stokes. And he returned a few years later when Bessie was uh, about 18 years old, if I remember correctly. And she w- she auditioned for them. She was hired. Uh, and she was primarily a dancer instead of a singer, since the company already had Ma Rainey as the leading singer. Now, uh, we uh, do know that Ma Rainey was also a very famous blues singer um, and also enjoyed the company of women as well as men, um, even though she was married to, to a man. Yeah, and uh, Mom Rainey, I know, kind of took her under her wing a little bit, she and really and made, it was a mentor of mm-hmm. of Bessie, and, and not so much like teaching her how to sing, uh, mm-hmm. but she already had that skill, that talent. But it was like uh, about her stage presence and delivery, right? And then, of course, uh, Smith progressed her career by performing in chorus lines, and eventually state was stationed in Atlanta, and that functioned as her home base. She created her own solo act in Theater 81. She started gaining momentum and popularity in the South and the East Coast. And it was it was quite remarkable because, like, 
you know, at that time, even Ma Rainey had her husband, like, traveling with her. Basie Smith was just such a strong person that she was able to really conduct business and perform, like, on her own. Yeah. You know, as she was, like, gaining popularity, entering in the, in the 1920s, you know, the market was really seeking uh, female blues singers, and, and Smith wanted to capitalize on the trend. So she signed with Columbia Records and began recording the blues. She also became the headliner for the Theater Owners Booking Association, which was a vaudeville circuit for African-American performance a decade. And uh, she performed in theaters and tent shows, uh, especially in the summertime, and traveled in her own railroad car, which I thought that was fascinating. And uh, she ended up actually becoming the highest paid black entertainer of her day. And uh, Columbia was really promoting her as the queen of the blues. But soon the press really upgraded her title to Empress of Blues. <laughs> I love that part. Yes. Um, now her career, you know, it had ups and downs, but like, you know, it was re it really had a very good trajectory up until uh, the Great Depression, which heavily affected the recording industry and uh, also the inclusion of sound in film was winning over vaudeville acts. So she continued performing in clubs and touring, uh, and even performed actually on Broadway in a musical called Pansy, 1921, at 29. That same year, she appeared in the movie St. Louis Blues, uh, where she sings a title song. And right. it and is, it's a short film. It's, it's only a short like 15 film. minutes. Uh, I, I did watch it on YouTube. Uh, incredible stage presence. Um, and I, I was really sad and like watching this movie, I was like, oh, I really wish she had done more film. Right. Really, really wish. Like, uh, just only having that one thing of hers. Well, and it was difficult because catching sound at that time was a little it, it different. Was like, even watching that movie, it's a little, mm -hmm. the sound is not the best quality. Mm -hmm. um, listening to her, like, record recordings, is, uh, I, I felt was better than, yes. you know. But it, getting a sense of her in the movie was also a good thing. But just as far as sound. The way goes, she moves, because yeah. obviously we were in a, a huge part in interviews and articles that I read about her was uh, her stage presence. Right. And it was in, in combination with her vocal ability. I, by no means do I understand everything about recording records, but a huge uh, success of her voice um, and the, the quality of the voice is that it catered very well to, be, to it being recorded. Right. So that really made her very, very successful in, in that regard. And uh, then now, before we move on, yeah. um, can you describe what a vaudeville act is? Because I don't think everybody quite knows. So a vaudeville act is uh, they, they're usually touring um, performers. Uh, it would it would include anything from singing, uh, you know, like humorous skits. presentations, yeah. skits, um, uh, acrobatics, uh, dancing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of tour companies would do vaudeville acts. As the swing era of the 1930s uh, entered, she did do some uh, recordings that changed her style to match the new direction of music that, you know, was headed towards. So she kind of, you could tell that she was progressing a little bit away from blues. Like it was still very much like her signature style, but it showed some more versatility that she can adapt. 
And uh, but come to think of it, since we were talking about vaudeville, Bessie did make most of her living performing live. As uh, the record labels, you know, they even even though they sold millions of her records, severely underpaid her. And and it wasn't just her; she was doing better than other black artists of her time. Uh, but the record labels were really owned by like white men. Yes, and they were definitely taking advantage of uh african-american artists and definitely it's something um it's covered a little bit in the movie bestie um mm-hmm. with queen, queen latifah. latifah and it was also covered a little in um the new movie ma rainey mm-hmm. uh which i don't know if you've seen i but, have i did i did watch okay it. but both of them kind of covered that a little bit and how hard these women fought to even get paid what they were getting paid they because yes. they knew they were getting taken advantage of and they they at least milked it for what they could. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and you also have to think that, you know, she didn't just have to support herself, but she supported her family, uh, who apparently squandered her money, mm-hmm. and uh, was also supporting her husband, who was, like, her manager as well. Right. And, you know, he uh, his name was uh, Jack uh, G., and even though he didn't really approve of her lifestyle, according to his claims, he d- did enjoy the financial perks that he came with being married <laughs> to Bessie Smith. And uh, I think her marriage really had such a tremendous impact in her life. Uh, it was a very turbulent relationship and included unfaithfulness and physical violence on uh, from both parties, uh, really. there's um, I was reading some interviews with one of her nieces, uh, Ruby Walker, was, who was also a backup dancer for Smith, uh, said that, you know, when she found out that he was, like, cheating on her uh, with a girl, uh, she threw the girl off the train and then found his gun, found him, and started shooting at them uh, and like, such a, a rage and, like, heartbreak. And uh, they, she, didn't, she didn't actually hit them with any bullets. <laughs> She wasn't really aiming to hit them, apparently. She was aiming more to, like, scare them. Right. And then, uh, besides her husband, you know, she also had uh, a lover called uh, Lillian Simpson, who was a friend of Ruby's and had joined the troupe as a dancer. And uh, they also had quite a tumultuous relationship because Lillian wasn't fully out and proud in contrast to Bessie Smith being very unapologetic with her sexuality, Lillian was embarrassed one t- one night when Bessie kissed her, and like when she in front like, of somebody in yeah. front of someone, and when you know uh, Lillian uh, pulled away, Bessie said, "The hell with you, bitch! I got twelve women on this show, and I can have one every night if I want to. Now, don't say another word to me while you're on this show." So she shunned her for like three days and uh, Lillian couldn't handle it anymore. So she decided to take her own life. So she wrote a suicide note that uh, her friend Ruby found She uh, in, in front of her hotel room. So she grabbed uh, Bessie and they were trying to break into the door. Lillian did fail to, to commit so, suicide. It was... Um, through gas asphyxiation, they, they managed yeah. to break into uh, the hotel room and save her. 
And, uh, you know, they continued their relationship, but eventually it did. Uh, and, uh, in, yeah, and then parting ways. Yeah, she left the show. The, the dancer left the show. Oh, and yeah. then um, Bessie started seeing another dancer, I guess. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> another one of her dancers. Yes, apparently Bessie Smith, um, you know, she did definitely sleep around. Um, she wasn't, as we mentioned, always very faithful to her husband, but neither was he. And uh, I, I do remember um, another story where uh, her husband um, started dating uh, and producing also a show of this other singer who was lighter skinned. Then Bessie, uh, her name was uh, Gertrude Saunders. Uh, when Smith found out, uh, again, her like sadness turned into her rage and uh, went uh, to Gertrude, beat her up, left her unconscious on the sidewalk. And she was eventually arrested and forced to pay a, a fine. But it really just shows um, how volatile the relationship right. was. She truly did lead such a... A, a full life. She did. And like something you mentioned there that the girl was lighter skin. I don't know if this is true because I couldn't, couldn't really find it like any other mm -hmm. places um, mentioned a whole lot. Uh, but in the movie, mm -hmm. uh, well, the, it is covered. Bag. Yeah. It's covered mm -hmm. that she did the kind of reverse brown bag uh, test and that she, she really did try to promote uh, darker skinned yes. people. Mm -hmm. Um, even in, in the African-American race. So mm -hmm. I thought that was important and uh, just showed that that she she was using her power the best way she could, like yes. even even outside of just mm -hmm. the singing world. I mean, it, it is part of uh, like how remarkable Bessie Smith was that uh, she didn't just perform and sing the blues. She really embodied them like, yes. with her life wholeheartedly. Like her music was all about like, independence like fearlessness and uh, she she sang about like social issues uh such as like capital punishment convict leasing chain gangs poverty a lot of like intra-racial conflicts um and then of course like the sexual freedom working class and, and in a way it was a protest music because it really challenged the religious norms of uh a white America at the time. Definitely. Uh, that were dominant. So she was an advocate for the working class and specifically for working class women. And uh, she did receive backlash for supporting them and encouraging African-American women to express their sexuality, enjoy drinking and and partying and, and vent in order to cope with all the, the burden and the stress and the, the dissatisfaction that they had in their daily lives. You know, they, they should be empowered and and be more than just the traditional domestic and, you know, conforming uh, right. within the societal norms of, definitely. of the time. And she definitely embraced the whole, like, hedon hedonism of the 20s. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so Absolutely. much. Like, I mean, she lived her life out loud. <laughs> she did. Uh, <laughs> it was amazing. I was, um, I, I was reading, like, she, she attended, like, sex shows, uh, had orgies. <laughs> she didn't just sleep with her backup dancers, like, they... They would go um, to what speakeasies also call like buffet flats because they provided food and lodging for 
traveling um, African-Americans, but because they were barred from segregated hotels. Right. But they also, uh, apparently, they could freely enjoy earthly desires. <laughs> yeah, because that was during a time when when drinking was technically illegal. But it was during she, the Prohibition yeah, time, yeah. She, she had bootleggers mm-hmm. um, and, and just enjoyed life. <laughs> she really enjoyed life. And, and, and she was a true artist because... Her medium was the strong, powerful contralto voice, and yeah. and just like her father, and that's why I mentioned like her father's like uh, employment as a preacher. Uh, she had been described as a preacher, like the way that she moved and delighted the audiences. She could apparently throw her powerful voice without a microphone to the back seats, and of like the theater, and you know, and then her like subject matter, her like lamentations were. We're so familiar and relatable with the audiences, and truly, that's what blues was about. She and she had this very unique ability to like upset and exhilarate and and really emotionally exhaust you and strike you as a listener. Um, and, and I think that like truth and sadness, uh, it's like what she really had to get off her her voice, so that. Her singing about pain and grief uh, really gave um, her life greater greater meaning, but then also the life of the audience. And when I first started listening to Bessie Smith as a as a teenager, because we of course all go through like you know really bad teenage years, right. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, I cannot really relate with everything this lady is going through, but her voice, the the the, yes. the trouble in her voice really resonates. With yeah, me. the emotion, the emotions. Yes. And as a teenager, you have all those emotions. You have all of them <laughs> <laughs> at the same time. Um. So, uh, yeah, and and I think you know having that. Um, you know that ability to be uh, true to herself and right. and and fight uh, against uh, segregation, uh, domestic abuse, uh, poverty from a young age, and you know essentially like being an orphan right. from like her parents. Does that again that like perseverance? Uh, right, and and of course being openly bisexual, right. and also Could, success. I mean, showing showing. Tremendous the world success. that she's successful. I mean, can you imagine a, a town of, of, at the time, very racist white people seeing mm-hmm. a, a full train mm-hmm. of Bessie Smith, an African-American, just mm-hmm. owning yeah. a full train? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I can... I can imagine. Right. <laughs> I'm thinking about it and I'm smiling. I love it, yes. <laughs> Um, so, uh, is she a queer icon? I think definitely. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, I don't see how she cannot be a queer <laughs> icon. Th- this woman was truly amazing. Um, she was mentored by Ma Rainey, who was also uh, bisexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do kind of assume both Ma Rainey's and Bessie Smith's sexuality. I'm not speaking against it or anything that it was bisexual because they did have sexual relations with both. But mm-hmm. seeing as it was the 20s, it's also possible that um, the times required. Yeah. Um, 
sexual relations with both, but we do assume that they are both bisexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did embrace the hedonism, as I said, of the 20s and just lived that life, lived her life, even the bisexual parts of her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lived them out loud without um, accepting grief from anybody. Mm-hmm. She even included it in songs that she sang, which that that really surprised me, um, hearing these songs that she recorded some of them yeah and and this was like mass released to people mm-hmm. and it's just thinking about now the time period i grew up in and the fights that we've had to get like any representation mm-hmm. kind of in music or, or anything and she was able to do it mm-hmm. she had um, a song that's boy in the boat where she sings women you uh, when you see two women walking hand in hand just look them over and try to understand uh They'll go to those parties, have the lights down low, only those parties where women can go. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and then she had a song, It's Dirty But Good, where she sang, uh, I know women that don't like men. It's dirty but good. Oh, yes, it's dirty but good. <laughs> there ain't much difference, but it's dirty but good. I thought <laughs> both of those were fantastic. Um. But as I said, she she lived her life as a badass. She didn't take shit from anyone. I think you pointed that out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when one of her girls tried to be shy about mm-hmm. showing her sexuality, you know, Bessie Smith smacked that down. Now there yeah. were repercussions for that, but mm-hmm. uh, I think that's true in most everything Bessie Smith did, and 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 we as gay people love kind of that confidence that that don't give a shit confidence of like yeah, against be, uh, the, yeah. the societal norms Absolutely. that condemn you and repress right. you and and then you know you you can serve like as an inspiration to others right. like she was um and i mean she has been a tremendous influence in uh in I mentioned Mahalia Jackson earlier, mm-hmm. but let's not forget um, Aretha Franklin or, right. or even Janis Joplin, who in 1970 uh, paid uh, partly for Bessie Smith's tombstone. Right. Uh, because Bessie Smith's ex-husband that we mentioned, he kept pocketing the money for a, a tombstone. So Bessie Smith was in an unmarked grave for decades. Oh Until Janis Joplin and this other lady put in the money for for a tomb. Yeah, that's amazing. It's it's, it's incredible. And shows like her reach. Her reach, <laughs> yeah, yeah through through the decades. <laughs> through the decades. So it, it, a tremendous influence uh, in the music world yeah. from you know jazz, blues, swing, rock and roll, right uh, to also the. LGBT community, right? You know, she was truly one of the pioneers. She was, and yeah. she kept she kept close relationships with other singers that were also uh, uh, bisexual or lesbian in nature, and some of them were even known to perform in men's tuxedos mm-hmm. in certain places uh, to show their their masculine side, um, even in performing. So I thought that was True. amazing. I that, did that I did read somewhere that she was also, comfortable with drag acts too. So yeah, and she also had drag queens follow her. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> see, ultimate gay icon. If you have <laughs> drag queens follow you, if you have drag queens following you, absolutely, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, so she did die. You said in thirty-seven. No, yeah, she died in nineteen thirty-seven. Okay, yep. 
<laughs> uh, she did die in 1937, and it was a truly tragic accident. Um, it was a car accident. It does not seem that it was done uh, on purpose. Her lover at the yeah, time. Yeah, her lover at the time. Uh, what do they call it? He was Something marriage. Uh, common law marriage. That's what it was. Uh, okay. they, they have been together long enough that it was kind of a common law marriage. He was driving, and they ended up... Uh, he tried to swerve from a truck that was stopped on the side of the road, I think coming around a bend or something. And he tried to swerve and Bessie's arm was out the window and it severed her arm. Mm -hmm. Um, Jack Albee actually wrote a um, one act play of, of Bessie Smith's death. Um, However, it did uh, promote kind of a myth of her death, which was they tried to take her to a white hospital first and she was rejected Mm -hmm. and then um, went to an African American, uh, hospital now the fact that there were two hospitals is bad enough like what like yeah the segregation of the time and that 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 was even a possibility to happen but apparently uh it's not entirely true as they say because the ambulance took her immediately to an african-american hospital mm-hmm. um and she did die in surgery i think at that point they tried to say yeah they, i think um, they had to amputate the arm yeah and but she died by the next morning yeah so is that by the next morning because i guess blood loss. right but the play jack always play actually takes place at the the white hospital that rejected her in the con- oh, conversation mm-hmm. on stage so it just helped kind of promote that uh inequality um, and the myth of of the death, but I think it was it's definitely an important to show that inequality and that it needed to be, yeah, done yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure, I, I mean, it's understandable, right? Yeah. So, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we have thoroughly enjoyed covering Bessie Smith. Like I said, I was actually really excited, um, and as I got deeper into it, I only got more excited. Um, don't forget to rate review and subscribe and definitely do all all your research on bestie smith too i think you'll be very inspired by everything you find listen to her music and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Definitely listen to her music. Like, if you will, do nothing else, listen to her. Music. Listen to her music. It will shake you to to your core. Right. And of course, not all her music is sad. Right. Uh, like, it's like Alexandra's Rectum Band. Like it, you know, there's a lot of like uh, more upbeat songs in there. Yes. It's just uh, uh, my personal affinity is towards the, the sadder, <laughs> <laughs> melancholy music that she produced. <laughs> But uh, yes, <laughs> thank you for listening. Um, we hope you have really been enthralled by uh, her life.